Imagine you are designing a system of government, one based on the ideals of self-government by means of representative democracy. In this system, you want the people, whoever you define as the people, to vote for officials who will make the important decisions on their behalf. Given that this is your goal, would you ever set up a super council of high priests who cannot be voted out by the people, but can overrule or outright veto the decisions of the elected leaders based on their whims? If that sounds ridiculous to you, you're in luck, because it also sounded ridiculous to the people who wrote the U.S. Constitution. That's why they never intended for the Supreme Court to have the power it now wields over our modern society. Welcome to Contempt of Court, a podcast for the nation sponsored by the New Press. I'm Ellie Mistal, the Justice Correspondent for the Nation. This is the seventh episode in our eight-episode series about reforming the Supreme Court. And today we're going to talk about taking the court out at the knees. You see, all of the reforms we've talked about in previous episodes, court expansion, term limits, court balancing, ethics reform, all of them accept the premise that the Supreme Court should keep its power over the elected branches of government. These reforms are focused on forcing the court to use its power more fairly, more justly, and with less mustache-twirling corruption. Those are noble goals. But I've begun to think that the underlying premise is flawed. Instead of reforming how the Supreme Court uses its power, what if we took its power away? The U.S. Supreme Court is pretty much the most powerful high court in the entire world. Other modern democracies get along just fine without having nine unelected rulers in robes telling Parliament or the Prime Minister what they can or cannot do. Maybe we should try listening to the rest of the world about how to run a democracy? Or maybe, and you won't hear me say this very often, we should try listening to the authors of our own constitution. Because at no point did the people who designed the government give the Supreme Court the power to veto the actions of other branches of government. Instead, that is a power the court gave to itself. The power to overturn acts of Congress or the president is called judicial review. And it's a power the Supreme Court gave to itself in the 1803 case Marbury v. Madison. There, for the first time, the court made itself the final arbiter of what laws Congress gets to pass. Our first guest thinks that we, or at the very least Congress, should take the power back. Ryan Dorfler is a scholar and professor at Harvard Law School, and he is a proponent of what lawyers call jurisdiction stripping. The idea is simple. Congress, not the Supreme Court, is fully capable of determining what is and is not constitutional. And it has the constitutional authority to strip from the Supreme Court the power of judicial review, and with it, the hubris of nine unelected people telling its co-equal branches of government what it can and cannot do. I am joined by Ryan Dorfler, Harvard Law Professor, sometime Nation columnist, 
and just one of the big brains about an issue that we have talked about and touched on throughout this show, throughout this series. Ryan is one of the stronger advocates for what's called in the scholarship jurisdiction stripping. It's the idea that the Supreme Court shouldn't have as much power as it does and that its power can be directly limited by acts of Congress, either in full or in a law-by-law basis. Ryan, thank you so much uh, for spending some time with me today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Ryan, really, first question out of the box, because it's it's such a jargony term. <laughs> right. What is jurisdiction stripping? What are we talking about when we say that? Yeah, so like in simplest terms, jurisdiction stripping is an ordinary act of Congress, right? An ordinary statute that says courts or the Supreme Court or some specific court shall have no authority to hear such and such case. Right. So it's just a direct prohibition against a court or courts in general from hearing a particular type of dispute. And now we can define that class of disputes very broadly. Right. Courts will have no jurisdiction over constitutional challenges to federal legislation, something like that. Or it could be very targeted. Right. Courts shall have no jurisdiction over uh, voting rights determinations made by uh, the Department of Justice, something like that. But, but the basic idea is ordinary act of Congress that says uh, courts shall have no power to review some class of, of disputes. Now, what's the constitutional basis for this, right? If you just skimmed your pocket constitution and you get to Article 3, which is like super short, everybody should read it, it's not hard. Um, Article 3 says that there shall be a Supreme Court that contains the judicial power in the land. How can Congress, how can Article 1 strip the Supreme Court of its power to be the judiciary. Right. So Article 3 does uh, mandate the existence of a Supreme Court, right, in contrast to lower federal courts, which only exist at the discretion of Congress. Uh, but at least the Constitution mandates the existence of a Supreme Court. But then notably, Article 3 specifically gives what is called original jurisdiction, right, grants sort of mandatory uh, direct jurisdiction for the Supreme Court over like a very particular set of cases, right? Things like disputes between states, like sort of very, a very limited and specific uh, sets of disputes. And then beyond that, Article 3 goes on to say that the Supreme Court shall have appellate jurisdiction, except with such exceptions uh, as Congress shall make, right? So then we have a presumption uh, of appellate jurisdiction in other cases, uh, but Congress is expressly authorized to make exceptions to that jurisdiction. So that is the really sort of explicit textual grant of authority to Congress to place constraints on the Supreme Court's jurisdiction. Okay, so that's the basics of how it would work constitutionally, right? That Congress could just pass a law saying the Supreme Court is not going to hear issues regarding this, that, or the other. Congress arguably could do it specific to every particular law. Like you could have had... You know, the Affordable Care Act say that, like, this is the Affordable Care Act. And guess what? The Supreme Court is not allowed to rule on whether or not it passes under the Commerce Clause. Congress is making that determination for itself. Right. So I get the argument from the perspective of how it's technically constitutional. Explain to people what we do about Marbury v. Madison. How do we get around the fact that the Supreme Court said unto itself that it has the power of judicial review. Right. So there's like a a broad and narrow way of like understanding that question, right? So there's like, in the broad sense, 
I mean, interesting. I mean, so my, my colleagues, uh, Nico Bowie and Daphne Renan are, are writing a, a book largely about sort of the Supreme Court sort of history and, and the process by which it sort of accrued a lot of power to itself. So in some sense, like the narrative where judicial review, judicial supremacy originated with Marbury is actually sort of a, a fiction that the court itself has helped create. And really, it sort of began around the time of Dred Scott. Like that's when the Supreme Court started to really sort of insist on its sort of authority to, to quote unquote, say what the law is, and then kind of like retconned this idea that that's always been true since Marbury. But but broadly speaking, right, so at least since the Civil War period, we've seen the court sort of really steadily try to establish this culture of what we might call a culture of judicial supremacy, right? That when it comes to questions about what the law is generally and, and, and what or what our constitution means, things like that, that we just have a, a culture in which courts have the final say, Right. Maybe other branches can share their views, but ultimately, you know, the courts have ultimate interpretive authority as to the Constitution and as to laws generally. Right. So one question is, like, how do we confront that culture? And that's a sort of a challenging task. I think the Supreme Court is helping already Mm -hmm. uh, with its various sort of, you know, egregious acts that are like steadily eroding its legitimacy in the eyes of the public. Right. Really like rapidly undermining this. I think like all in my view, like a sort of always false ideal of the court as this apolitical body. So in that sense, I think the court is helping helping us along. Uh, and then I think the other side of affecting that cultural shift is, on the one hand, other political actors, you know, sort of members of Congress, the president, openly treating the court as not at the ultimate authority, but just another interlocutor in this sort of debate or dispute about what the Constitution means. But also, I think it's a part about building sort of a mass politics around this idea, more like a, a what, you know, earlier academics have called like a popular constitutionalism. Mm-hmm. This idea that it's appropriate not only for other governmental actors to interpret the Constitution, but also just for the people themselves to do that, right? And then to demand of their representatives, right? Demand of Congress, demand of the president that the Constitution be interpreted in the way that the people think that it should be. So that's on the cultural side. Then there's the narrower side of like, the sort of technical, legal sort of claims that the court makes and concerning its authority to interpret the law. And I think there what's interesting is that if you look, in many ways, Congress is already doing this in like low visibility ways, mm. right? So there's actually a, a paper uh, by Laura Dolbau, who's a Charleswood fellow at the University of Pennsylvania Law School, where I used to work, where she just does this fantastic job of like cataloging all of the specific jurisdiction stripping statutes that Congress has already enacted. Right. So especially in like the national security context, for example, or immigration uh, there, we see Congress already uh, limiting court's ability to review actions taken by various administrative actors, let's say. And so so part of it is that that although we have a broad culture of judicial supremacy, when you really get into the fine details, it turns out that there are already exceptions to that narrative. And very often there are exceptions that the right has made use of. Right. Insulating, again, like things like national security decisions uh, from uh, judicial oversight. And so in a way, it's sort of like it falls then to the left to sort of make, make use of those of those same tools. You mentioned the executive a little bit, and most of the jurisdiction stripping arguments are hyper-focused on Congress and hyper-focused on Congress's ability to, to legislate their way through this. In fairness, that's probably what the Constitution contemplates as well, Congress kind of taking a more active role in limiting the power of the Supreme Court. But – Throughout history, we have seen executives here or there, um, I think the way that you just put it was, treat the court as an interlocutor 
in the conversation of what's constitutional, but not necessarily the final say. Right. right? right. And we've seen that from Andrew Jackson. We've seen it from Abraham Lincoln, especially uh, during some of the Civil War cases. We saw it from Teddy Roosevelt, somewhat famously. Uh, uh, the chief justice has made his ruling. Now let him see. Let us see him enforce it. So we've seen like pockets of this from time to time. Do you think the president of the United States should have a more active role in interpreting the Constitution through their power to enforce what the Supreme Court says and the rules and regulations thereof? Yeah, I mean, I definitely do. I mean, so importantly, I think like you're right to say that like the focus of jurisdiction stripping conversation has been about Congress and insulating acts of Congress from judicial invalidation. And I think rightly so. Because I think like in terms of like the democratic pedigree, like at least within a well-functioning democracy, which hopefully we're like, we at least need to like work our way towards being a more well-functioning democracy. But but ultimately, right, it's it just in terms of it's much healthier for democracy to be able to rely on a multi-member parliamentary type body to make its primary political institutions rather than a single figure like the president. So in that sense, uh, it makes sense to, to focus on protecting Congress in particular. At the same time, I do think ultimately, one, in terms of just inevitably, the president is going to be involved in sort of specifying the details of legislation, right? Congress legislates broadly, and then it relies on the executive and the administrative state to sort of give more precise content to the laws. And that itself is a political action, in my view, mm -hmm. right? And so, and similarly, Congress will sometimes delegate to the president to sort of give content even to constitutional values like equal protection, let's say. Uh, and so in that space there too, I think appropriately the president should play a significant role in, again, giving content to that otherwise very under-specified document. And now we can talk about sort of like maybe that there should be sort of more judicial oversight vis-a-vis -vis the president than vis-a-vis -vis Congress. I think there's a plausible story to tell uh, or, or there's a sort of plausible case to be made there. But but at the very least, I think it's, it's entirely appropriate uh, for the president uh, to assert him or herself as uh, at least on equal footing with the court in that conversation about what the Constitution should mean. I bring up the executive branch because I think, uh, in my view, a lot of this kind of comes down to who has the power. And so often that just comes down to who has the boots on the ground, right? Like uh, one of the arguments I've made is that abortion would still be available in states like Texas and Mississippi and Missouri if Joe Biden would send in the army to provide abortion services, um, you'd still be able to get them, right? So like so much of, of our debates actually come down to a sense of like who has power on the ground. That leads me though to one of, you know, and for listeners, Ryan and I actually had the opportunity uh, to talk about this in the nation and a little bit of a back and forth. But that brings me once to one of my big worries about jurisdiction stripping. What happens when the court says no, right? So you write the law, say uh, you can't rule on um, the constitutionality of this federal statute or these kinds of federal statutes, let's say, in the voting rights context. And the Supreme Court just says no, that it's heard your argument of why you think it's constitutional, but we're the Supreme Court and we have judicial supremacy and we get to decide what's constitutional or not. And we've decided that Congress, your jurisdiction stripping statute is itself unconstitutional. And so we're just going to rule on this case anyway. 
Great. Yeah, so I think there's a two, two types of responses. One, I think, is to make a more general observation about the relationship between jurisdiction stripping and other reform proposals, and in particular, court packing or court expansion, uh, if you prefer. Uh, because I think often in these conversations, there's a, there's a sort of tendency that I've certainly fallen prey to, but I think more generally, there's a tendency to say, like, should we do X or should we do Y? Should we do court packing or should we do jurisdiction stripping? And I think ultimately... I think that there's no, like these things can sort of act as complements rather than alternatives. And I think in particular, if I think about the sort of longer term path to jurisdiction stripping specifically, but also just sort of eroding this culture of judicial, judicial supremacy, I think it's very plausible that a threshold or initial step towards that ultimate goal would be court expansion, would be the addition of justices who would Right. Not just sort of rule substantively in ways that we would like, but also in terms of the role of the court would acquiesce to a legislative program of stripping the court of its authority. So I think one way would to be to try, try to preempt that, right, preempt the court's mm-hmm. resistance by loading up the court with justices who would who would bless jurisdiction stripping. But suppose that turned out not to be the case in some specific circumstance, right? The court, for whatever reason, you can't get sufficiently many sympathetic judges or justices and the court says, no, uh, this uh, jurisdiction stepping legislation is unconstitutional. You know, Article 3, say what the law is, blah, blah. What do you do then? And so I think there, there are a range of options from <laughs> ranging from sort of squarely legal to perhaps ex- veering into extra legal, right? So one, mm-hmm. uh, there are various retaliatory measures that Congress and the president could take, like like squarely legal retaliatory measures uh, that Congress could take uh, vis-a-vis the justices, whether it is slashing their budget, you know, taking away their clerks, loading up the court with mandatory jurisdiction over hundreds of cases a year, right? Really just making life unpleasant for the Supreme Court justices, all consistent with their sort of grants of life tenure and salary protection, right? There are all kinds of things uh, that Congress and the president together could do to make Again, so just to sort of push back against uh, the court in that way, but even more aggressively, like right on the sort of along the sort of line from sort of squarely legal to more extra legal, you could also have a situation where the president simply defies the Supreme Court. Mm. Right. So, I mean, so, for example, if uh, Congress uh, were to enact legislation, something like the Women's Health Protection Act, right, something establishing uh, a federal uh, right to abortion uh, and were to include, as it should, uh, a, a jurisdiction stripping statute. Uh, and then, you know, the, um, the Supreme Court were to say, well, you know, this violates the Commerce Clause. There's no constitutional authority for this legislation. The president could just say, like, too bad. We're pressing ahead. We're going to we're going to enforce uh, this federal right uh, to an abortion in much the way that you uh, just suggested. Yeah, that's always a, an option. But then what about Mississippi? Right. So the president decides they're going to go ahead and act. Congress decides they're going to go ahead and act. Um, the Supreme Court says no. And Mississippi says, actually, I agree with the Supreme Court. We don't have to give women no rights like that's yep. that's their like, doesn't that inevitably lead to what I kind of suggested earlier, boots on the ground? It might. But I don't. But importantly, I think that's not a that's not a judicial supremacy problem. That's a Mississippi problem. Right. That's Brown v. Board. <laughs> right. So Brown v. Board, the court rule in the way that we would like. Same situation. <laughs> Mississippi says we don't disagree, or where Alabama says we don't agree with the Supreme Court. Then you, you know, and then you know what? What good is that ruling until you actually have federal intervention? So in that sense, I just think that's. I mean, it's true. We live in like a, a highly polarized society, and that itself presents like real political challenges. I think that's true. I mean, now I tend to think that like the only way to deal with that is to sort of push through it. And to rely on mm. assertions of federal authority. I mean, that's my 
sort of inclination. Mm-hmm. But but again, I don't think that's a problem that's unique to the Supreme Court or judicial supremacy. That's just a unique. That's just a, I mean, that would be true if, if Congress were to enact a federal guarantee of abortion rights and the Supreme Court were to uphold it. You would still have that same threat of state level resistance. Part two of the what about Mississippi question is, okay, so Congress passes a law jurisdiction stripping, we're going to protect women's rights, and uh, the Supreme Court can't rule. Mississippi says, all right, that's a good idea. We're going to pass a law banning gay people from going to restaurants, and the Supreme Court can't, we're going to jurisdiction strip the Supreme Court, can't tell us because we have states' rights about what we can do about gay people in our restaurants. There are two possible ways to try to deal with that situation. One, I think the healthier way to deal with that situation would be for Congress to pass legislation, you know, again, sort of you know, pointing to the supremacy clause that displaces uh, that prohibition and instead sort of have uh, explicit guarantees of access to those sorts of public services or public spaces uh, in, in those states. And then, and then again, you have to rely on the is it of executive to enforce those laws and so on. But one would be to have, again, sort of have Congress just sort of pass laws that directly negate and supplant that state level discriminatory law. Or alternatively, you could have Congress pass like a broad or, or just sort of rely on existing uh, broad anti-discrimination legislation and rely on some federal agency to pass, you know, through reg- regulation. But again, some sort of positive enactment either from Congress or the administrative state. The other option, though, and this is, again, sort of an option that my uh, my colleagues, uh, Nico Bui and, and Daphne Renan, are very enthusiastic about, is to draw a distinction between uh, judicial review of federal legislation and state-level legislation. One is there's sort of, the, in terms of the democratic pedigree, right, the democratic pedigree of a national law is obviously much more robust than a state-level state-level law. But then, as Nico and, and Daphne argue, uh, Congress can and has in the past relied on the federal judiciary then to effectively enforce federal understanding of constitutional law or just or just federal laws more generally in those recalcitrant states right so we so we say like no so congress explicitly grants federal courts jurisdiction over state level legislation right mm-hmm. not because of judicial supremacy or anything like that but because congress chooses to rely on the judiciary federal judiciary as its adjunct right to police mm. that state level uh, activity Congress can rely on federal courts. Congress can also rely on federal agencies, which is probably more my inclination. Uh, but again, these are different ways to try to sort of separate out sort of state level legislation, which importantly is where most of the examples where we think, oh, aren't we glad that there was judicial review or judicial sort of authority? Most of the historical cases where we think that those that has been attractive have been in these sort of state level cases, right? Sort of discriminatory state laws, as opposed to federal legislation where examples of the Supreme Court stepping in and invalidating repugnant federal legislation are few, if any. Yeah. And also because, as you mentioned, the democratic pedigree, it is simply easier for us as a nation to overturn bad national laws. We have biannual congressional elections, we vote for a president every four years, you know, it's much harder for kind of the nation writ writ large to do anything about Mississippi or Alabama, especially when you think about all of the anti-democratic gerrymandering enhanced rules that states that certain states put into play, um, specifically to decrease the electoral power of their minority populations. Are you worried at all that we're putting way too much faith in Congress? Right. Like the and I'm not I don't play devil's advocate on on the show. One argument that does 
appeal to me at a certain level for judicial supremacy is that for the most part, the Supreme Court justices are smart. And we can we can kind of uh, uh, debate, and I will certainly rail against you know that they they will use their powers for evil as opposed to good more often than not. I feel, but at a fundamental level, they are smart. They are well educated. They are well versed in many of the issues that they're talking about. Congress is not smart. Writ large, there are smart people who go to Congress, obviously, but that is not a requirement for that job. Congress lends itself to, and you know, I'm going to sound a little bit like uh, uh, Socrates here, right? But like this is, Congress is not a meritocracy. Congress is a popularity contest, right? And so you have the potential that, you know, just the most popular and certainly in part because of the Supreme Court's own rulings in cases like Citizens United, either the most popular or the most well-funded person can kind of buy themselves a congressional seat. They might not have a great understanding of how laws work or how rights work, you know? For every kind of high-minded Katie Porter's whiteboard person, you've got a Marjorie Taylor Greene. So are we at the risk of kind of putting too much power and too much faith in Congress, given all of its kind of somewhat obvious problems with corruption and just general lack of knowledge, as opposed to having some of these issues decided by, for lack of a better term, a group of elites. Yeah, no, I mean, but I think that that's precisely the question, right? So we have a, a deeply, deeply flawed and unrepresentative Congress. But importantly in this space, what I always emphasize is that like the question that we're presented with is always a comparative one, right? It's not, a, is Congress good? The question is, is it better than the Supreme Court? Is it better than the judiciary? And there, I want to say, like, even, you know, Congress, as bad as it is, uh, I think even in its present form, I trust more than I, than I trust the judiciary in its present form. Moreover, I have more optimism about the ability of the population at large so to push Congress to be better than it is. And that's another thing to, to point out, that the this project of judicial reform should not be understood as to the exclusion of congressional reform or Senate reform in particular, right? I think right. what's critical if, if this country is going to survive is that we have a sort of much like a, a broader sort of like democracy reform program, right? And that's going to involve partly reform of the the judiciary, which is what I focus on, but also definitely it's going to involve reform of Congress and the Senate. It's going to involve reform with the Electoral College uh, and so on. But okay, but you say like, okay, look, like Congress is corrupt, uh, correct. Uh, These people are in many cases like very like unsophisticated, uninterested, just sort of incurious, uh, sort of often bigoted people, right? Like, aren't you worried about that? Wouldn't you rather have, uh, you know, people who went to Harvard and Yale Law School making these decisions? And I still think the answer, I would say, is no. And I think the reason is the justices that we're talking about, importantly, this because you said, like, Congress is not a meritocracy. Absolutely right. Guess what? Neither is the Supreme Court, right? The Supreme Court is selected by whom? Well, by politicians, right? They're selected by the president in consultation with his political party and obviously but and have to get past the Senate, right? So those same people are the ones who are approving these justices, right? It's not just the people who are like the president of the law review who get to be Supreme Court justice, right? It's people who politicians, you know, people who like Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell deem uh, appropriate to, to serve on the Supreme Court. And of course, they have credentials, right? They, they, they know how to sort of like put together a CV that looks sort of classy, uh, but ultimately, right, they're being selective as political agents to effectuate a political project. So in that sense, I don't think there's any reason to think that ideologically somehow that these justices are better or more enlightened than the people who picked them. Moreover, 
I really think about this in terms of class politics, mm. right? So, so as you said, like, look, do we want to have decision by elites or do we want to have decisions by sort of less refined individuals? But I also, I would say individuals, and also importantly, these people are also elites, like most, you know, most of them. I mean, they may put on sort of like a sort of more like populist affect, but, you know, it's like most of these people also went to Harvard and Yale. Right. Even if they're sort of like, you know, I mean, maybe not, maybe not all of them, but many of these Louisiana Senator John Kennedy, he might talk like Foghorn Leghorn. Exactly. But he might talk, I'm just out with the crawdads, but he went to Oxford. I mean, like, this is not, this is not the guy that he seems to be, right? Exactly. Ted Cruz, you know, I mean, there are a million examples like this. And so then the question becomes okay, so we have, on the one hand, we have elites selected by other elites who are now insulated from popular pressure, insulated to some degree from mass politics. Versus elites who at least are subject to electoral pressure. Again, limited, the pressure that we can place on them, given partisan gerrymandering, Senate, you know, allocation and so on. You know, so again, so we live in a highly imperfect democracy. But if I'm asking, like, where can unions apply pressure effectively? Where can, like, you know, sort of anti-mass incarceration advocates best apply pressure? I think they can much more effectively apply pressure at the congressional level than they can at the Supreme court level. And so for that reason, I think just in general, I would rather have rely, I would rather have power vested in elites subject to democratic pressure than elites deliberately insulated from democratic pressure. Mm-hmm. Do you have any sense that this idea, your ideas, the scholarship around this issue is gaining popular acceptance specifically within the halls of Congress? And I ask that question from the standpoint of One of the things that has been honestly frustrating to me and honestly surprising to me as I have gotten deeper into the rabbit hole of Supreme Court reform is that so many of the reform ideas involve me or you or people like us telling Congress, hey, guys, here's some more power. And Congress saying, no, 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 no. We don't want we don't want such. And it's like, what? What? Like these people will in other contexts grab any shred of authority they can find here. We're saying that one branch of government has kind of gotten completely outsized and is actually limiting your relevance as a congressperson or senator do something and they, they recoil, they won't. So like, what's been your experience with that? Are you seeing a a change in that at all? Like, when you talk to the politicians, if you and um, if you do have to talk to them, I'm sorry. Um, you know, what's your sense about both why they're not grabbing this power, and whether or not there's any kind of movement for them to take it? As with a lot of Democratic Party politics, I think there's a generational divide here. Mm. I do think that some younger electeds get it. So I think like like AOC, for example, has made some very bold statements in terms of Congress's need to like and, and the president also to sort of like take authority away from the court. Right. Not not merely to add sympathetic justices, which, again, like is a, is a sort of important task. But but again, sort of realizing that that's the beginning of the project, not the end. Other people like Mondra Jones, who now unfortunately has exited Congress, but now that he was another figure who I think understood the sort of like ultimate need to, to sort of strip authority away from Congress. By contrast, right, so I think older uh, electeds within the Democratic Party, I think, are much more reluctant on this front. I think partly it is because they are much more institutionalists. Uh, I think President Biden, for example, I think really believes that like 
you know, the sort of just the just the stability of the nation, like the nation would collapse if not for uh, the, you know, these sort of like historic institutions being in place to, to, hold, to hold things together. And so partly I think that is like an honest belief in the importance of institutions. I think part of it is a pessimism about the public, about mm-hmm. citizens. I think people for whom their formative political experiences were during the Reagan revolution, right? I think view it as like, look, you know, I don't know, the people are bigoted and need to be sort of, you know, again, sort of held in check by elites. Even conservatively, elites are sort of more enlightened than the masses. And that's a particular picture. It's a, it's a very pessimistic understanding of the, of the American population that I think was an overreaction to what happened on the ground even in the 1980s. But I think like for younger people, that just doesn't resonate. Mm-hmm. Right. Younger people uh, see Republicans maintaining power through minoritarian institutions. Right. They see they see Donald Trump taking the presidency despite losing the popular vote. Uh, sort of Republicans rely, relying on uh, both federal and state level gerrymandering and so on. So I think like there's much more of a sense among like younger and more progressive Democrats that actually the public's on your side on a lot of things that you care about. Right. Things like abortion rights. It's not the, the lack of public support. It's the sort of it's these anti-democratic, anti-majoritarian institutions like the Supreme Court uh, or the Senate that are getting in the way. So I think partly there's that. It's just, it's a, it's a, there's sort of like, what is your sort of mental picture of like, what is the public like? I think you have a generational difference there. The last thing I'll say though, that's a little bit more critical is you say Congress wants to grab all the power that it can. And I, you know, I wonder, <laughs> I don't think I want to accept that. Cause I think like very often you see again, more sort of centrist Democrats say like, oh, woe is me. Of course, you know, I would love to, I would love to enact, you know, Medicare for all. I would love to enhance social security. We'd love to, you know, uh, have really aggressive, you know, gun legislation, blah, blah, blah. We'd love to do all these things. Oh, but we can't, right? There are all these, there are all these barriers that, you know, it's not that I disagree with you. It's just that it's not, it's just not possible. And, and I, and at some point, like, I just want to call bullshit, right? This just seems like a sort of ideological disagreement masked as a sort of strategic assessment of sort of what's possible, a difference in, assess- in an assessment of what's possible. So I think partly this institutionalism is a convenient excuse not for Congress not to take bolder action, right? Not to pass federal uh, abortion legislation, not to pass uh, federal uh, gun regulation, and so on. And so I think partly it is just, again, there's this ongoing dispute within the Democratic Party about like, what is the future of the party? Is it gonna sort of go with the sort of younger progressives or are we gonna stick with the older institutionalists? And so I think this is just one manifestation of that larger uh, dispute. I love that you said that because I feel like that story that you just told about how Democrats sometimes like to blame the Supreme Court or other institutions for their own unwillingness to take bold radical change. I feel like that story is actually part of the story of how Republicans won the Supreme Court in the first place. Because for a generation, you had Republican politicians going home to their bases and saying, oh, I would love to do something about abortion rights. I would love to do something about gay rights. But, oh, the Supreme Court just won't let me vote for me so we can have better Supreme Court justices. But don't hold me accountable for bringing your culture war policies to bear on the nation. I'm just a congressperson, right? Mm -hmm. I guess my follow-up is laying out the ground as you have. And I think in a really smart way, I asked, are the politicians getting it? Now I'll ask, finally, do you think the people are starting to get it? Because I just just from the perspective of doing this podcast series, I feel like I've heard more about jurisdiction stripping 
than I thought I would. Right. And, and, and I feel like more people are interested in that than I could have possibly uh, thought they would be two, three, four years ago. Yeah, no, I think I mean, I think on the on the one hand, I think, yes, we're making progress like it's it went, like this idea of stripping the court of authority went from sort of like unthinkable to a totally sort of like something that people have like heard of. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I think that one failing on the part of advocates like me and other people writing in this space is that I do think our advocacy has been too elite focused. Hmm. And I think what we're trying to remedy now is I think as the court reform project becomes a at least a medium term or long term project, I think, unfortunately, I think that we need to do more sort of base building. So more more direct engagement with advocacy groups like like unions uh, or, you know, environmental activists and the like. And so I think that sort of more direct engagement with groups on the ground, I think, is something that we need to, we need to do more and, and to sort of build up that support. Harvard Law's Ryan Dorfler, thank you so much for joining me. Um, fascinating conversation. I love your work. And this is to me, this is the this is the vanguard of, of where we go. If you if you've listened to this series and you're not sold on any of the court reform arguments, then maybe you need to think a little bit more about massively stripping the power from the institution. Maybe the institution can't be reformed so much as it needs to be stopped. Ryan, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Ellie. This was great. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Earlier in this series, I talked with Michigan law professor Leah Littman about the increasingly popular idea of applying term limits to the Supreme Court justices. She was down to do that, thought it had constitutional merit, 
at least in the case of future judicial appointments. But she recognized that term limits are not an immediate answer to the extremism of the current Supreme Court. Instead, Professor Lippmann argued that jurisdiction stripping is key to putting the Supreme Court back where it belongs. I am joined right now by Michigan law professor Leah Littman. She's also one of the co-hosts of the Strict Scrutiny podcast, which is, for my money, the best podcast about the Supreme Court out there in a kind of rolling basis. So she's a fantastic commentator and broadcaster as well. So what reforms do you think would work? So I want a package deal. Maybe this is the lawyer or law professor in me. (laughs) I I want a package on two fronts. One is I want a package of reforms about the Supreme Court. But because part of that package of reforms, which I'll lay out in a second, would involve disempowering the Supreme Court in some respects, I think we also need to reinforce the democratic legitimacy of other institutions. Mm. Specifically, if you decrease the power of the Supreme Court, you are increasing right the power of Congress and state legislatures. But those institutions are subject to partisan gerrymandering, racial gerrymandering, Senate malapportionment, and whatnot. And so if you are going to be relying on those institutions more, you know, you need to do things that address those democratic deficits with those institutions as well. So that's like one part of the reform. And I think that's part of court reform because, again, I part of my solution is disempowering the court. But in order to disempower the court, you need to reinvigorate the institutions that will be empowered. OK, so now my package of court reforms, in addition to term limits, expanding the court, um, and then some jurisdiction stripping proposals, specifically jurisdiction stripping proposals that limit the Supreme Court's ability to strike down federal statutes on the ground that they are unconstitutional. In my preferred world, if the Supreme Court thinks that a federal statute is unconstitutional, it essentially remands it to Congress and Congress can decide whether to reenact it. And so that would be kind of like my version of jurisdiction stripping coupled with expansion and term limits as well. So you do think that term limits are part of a holistic, robust reform package. They're just not the silver bullet um, that a lot of commentators and people seem to think they are. Exactly. You know, I think it would be great to routinize Supreme Court appointments. I think it would be good to emphasize that Supreme Court appointments are political. So people understand when they go to right vote for a president, they are also picking someone who's going to pick Supreme Court justices. And I think that recognizing the political nature of the institution in that respect is important. But again, like doing that is not going to fix the problem we are staring down for the next 40 plus years. So it's one part of the reform, but it's really not going to do the whole thing. How did you come to embrace court reform as a thing that needs to happen? One of the things that I've been been saying a lot on the show is that, you know, very few people kind of like show up, you know, 3L year law school and like, you know what, we need to burn it down. Like very (laughs) few people kind of start off as court reformers. They get, you know, experience life watching the Supreme Court actually do what it does brings them there. How are you brought to a position of reform over your kind of personal experience? Yeah. So I think um, most people who knew me in law school and afterwards are a little surprised that I have embraced this so strongly. I was kind of a typical law student, center left, who, you know, was very interested in institutions and laws and wanted to see them work. And then I clerked on the Supreme Court when they heard the first constitutional challenge to the Affordable Care Act. 
And I thought this is not a sensible way to run a constitutional democracy. I mean, that (laughs) year, the justices came within one vote of dismantling the entire Affordable Care Act because they were fixated on the idea that one day the federal government would make you buy broccoli. And they almost took away health insurance from like millions of people for that reason. And so that was, I'd say, like a significant turning point in my orientation to the court and legal profession in general. And I understood at that point that things were happening, they were not good, and they were probably going to get worse uh, just based (laughs) on some observations. And then, you know, seeing what has happened in the decade since, you know, how Mitch McConnell has played unilateral, asymmetric, constitutional hardball, um, and the Republican Party with him as well, right, to seize control of the federal courts, and then seeing who they've been appointing to the federal courts and what those appointees have been doing. And all of that, I think, is fundamentally inconsistent with core aspects of being a multiracial democracy. And because Right. I would prefer to live in a multiracial democracy where women are not forced to give birth to children against their will and are not forced to become mothers against their will. I came to embrace court reform. That's it. It's a fairly standard story, actually. I mean, like, <laughs> right, exactly. Like, like, like it's not that shocking. Right. And a part of me believes it to be true, though. A part of me is also hoping it to be true um, that. Republicans, conservative legal movement, vastly underestimated how radicalizing their actions over the last decade have been to people who were normies, right, who were institutionalists and who were not exactly fire breathing, right, flamethrowers at the outset. I think if they've underestimated it, it's only because that the institutional establishment Democratic normies that they actually interact with every day have not been radicalized, right? Dick Durbin, not radicalized. Chris Coons, not radicalized. Most of the Democrats on the Senate Judiciary Committee are there because they are not radicals in terms of these issues. And so if you're a Republican looking at this, all you can possibly think is like, wow, I've punked these people and they're too cowardly to stand up to me. I'm going to do it some more, right? Like that's that's the the feedback loop from Congress has been affirming if you are a Republican playing hardball with the, with the Supreme Court, nothing, you never lose right. when, when yeah. you take that stand. Democrats never make you pay for it. But that's another show. I want you to talk more about the really important point that if you disempower the court, you are by necessity re-empowering other institutions of government. One of the things that I have said, especially when we talk about ethics, is that the only group of people I can think of that are less ethical than the current Supreme Court is the wretched hive of scum and villainy that is Congress. Like, there's just, I am not uh, um, blind to the fact that having Congress be in charge of deciding what ethics are for the Supreme Court it might be the right solution, but it's not. It's not a fun solution, right? It's not. It's not an obvious solution, um, given what Congress is. And I think that when you talk about disempowering the court through various means, um, you're absolutely right to point out that that means that Congress and especially rando state legislatures become way more powerful 
so talk to me about those reforms, because what do you do about that? Right, exactly. And, you know, this is part of where I think the importance of court expansion comes in, because those reforms are probably going to happen in part by statutes. And we actually need courts that would be willing to enforce those statutory reforms. So I'll just list two. Uh, you know, imagine a federal statute that prohibits partisan gerrymandering, right? It doesn't allow states to draw legislative districts in ways that allow, you know, one political party to retain control, even though a majority of voters vote for the other party. Or it doesn't create a bunch of safe districts where you can, right, elect Marjorie Taylor's Green, right, across the country because, right, they're just supermajority Republican districts that are never going to elect Democrats. Um, and I think that a federal statute prohibiting partisan gerrymandering would go, right, some way toward reinvigorating both state legislatures as well as the House of Representatives and also, right, helping turnout in statewide elections like for senators because when you have more competitive districts, then People know their vote counts and they're more likely to go out to vote. Um, and so I think that a federal statute that prohibits partisan gerrymandering, right, is helpful. And the reason why court expansion is necessary to that is I'm not confident that this Supreme Court would, one, uphold a federal statute prohibiting partisan gerrymandering or, two, even if it did, right, meaningfully enforce it, right, according to its terms. Mm -hmm. A second component would be uh, prohibiting vote dilution and essentially diluting the voting power of racial minorities. You know, we in some ways have a statute that already does this, the Voting Rights Act. But, you know, that's again, uh, back to the importance. Exactly. <laughs> back to the importance of court expansion. Right. Roberts Court blew part of it up and it has whittled down the other by refusing to interpret it according to its terms. And so I think that those two provisions, right, in a world with courts that were actually willing to allow Congress to facilitate democracy and multiracial democracy included, those would go at least some of the way toward reinvigorating both state legislatures as well as the House of Representatives. You know, Senate malapportionment, right, they're are, you know, some things you could do, like uh, creating the opportunity for D.C. statehood, Puerto Rico statehood that would, you know, address some of the Senate malapportionment. But the, you know, there are others as well addressing the filibuster in ways that only allow a majority of or a supermajority of senators who represent, right, a majority of the country or a supermajority of the country to filibuster legislation. That's another way of kind of addressing Senate malapportionment. So those are some possibilities, all of which I think would take important steps to allowing us to put more trust in institutions that would be empowered in a world in where the court would be, you know, disempowered. Law Professor Leah Lippman, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate all of your insights and commentary. If you're not a regular listener to Strict Scrutiny, um, you are just doing it wrong. You are, <laughs> you, are, you are not getting news that you need to be hearing. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I have to confess, until recently, I had generally been skeptical about jurisdiction stripping because I'm Black. Congress is a majoritarian institution with no inherent protections for minority rights, viewpoints, or political power. In our particular system, I thought we needed an institution that can check Congress's power. It's a different situation in modern parliamentary systems. In those systems, the minority party, often parties, is still guaranteed to be represented. 
If your party gets 49% of the votes, your party gets 49% of the seats in the legislature. But the U.S. Congress is a win-or-go-home system. If your party gets 49% of the vote, it could still end up with 0% of the seats in Congress if the districts have been gerrymandered correctly. As a Black person who is painfully aware that Black people only make up around 14% of the population, I spend a lot of time worrying about the tyranny of the white majority. So the idea of a Supreme Court removed from the political will of whatever tortures and petty insults white people can dream up to visit upon my people holds a certain appeal to me. I want there to be somebody, some institution that can tell white political majorities no. In an ideal world, the Supreme Court should be that legal institutional check on the worst instincts of white voters. The problem is, it's not. With the exception of a few years in the middle of the 20th century, when the court momentarily remembered that the South had not accepted the outcome of the Civil War, the Supreme Court has functioned as the handmaiden to white power. It has misinterpreted and reinterpreted the Constitution and its amendments in the most narrow ways so as to maintain a white supremacist status quo. It's not a check on white voters. It's a license for them to do their evil under the color of constitutional law. I still don't have great faith in the democratic promise of Congress. I do not relish trying to convince a majority of white voters to share the rights and privileges this country has always given to white people with everybody else. But at least I can use all of the normal tools of political organization and persuasion to nudge them and the people they elect towards justice. The justices on the Supreme Court are immune to such pressure. They are not representatives, but rulers, and they are cloaked in power until they die. Maybe it's time to take away their robes and try this democracy thing on for size. Can't be any worse, right? Next week, if Congress won't act on jurisdiction stripping, we'll talk about what the people can do to take away the power of the Supreme Court justices. Ignore them. This podcast was produced by Connor Gillies, Ludwig Hurtado, Babette Thomas, and Lizzie Ratner. Our original music was made by Ellington Pete. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. 
Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. American Giant makes great clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, and more right here in the U.S. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order with code STAPLE20. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, code STAPLE20.